This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Ah, yes. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium and The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett, and you have found us. Come on in, grab a stool, warm yourself by the fire. You are among friends. St. John Hunt the son of former CIA agent E. Howard Hunt is standing by, and he'll join us in just a few moments. Uh, Ian Robertson is here on the other side of the sliding glass door, twisting the knobs and the dials. Albert Vinzel is also here. Albert and I have posted our usual assortment of tantalizing tidbits and fascinating news stories on the website, strangeplanet.ca. Once there, you just go to the radio page for The Conspiracy Show. So again, strangeplanet.ca, and uh, there you'll find the radio page. Just click on that. At the top of the radio page is a slide carousel, including uh, this item. You might want to check it out before you head down to the uh, ballpark, although just a few games remaining in the, uh, the season. But before you go down to the ballpark or the next time you order a hot dog... Uh, Now get this, in the United States, between Memorial Day and Labor Day, about 7 billion, that's what the bee hot dogs will be consumed or are consumed in the United States. And uh, on the 4th of July, 150 million hot dogs alone. Uh, Well, uh, an organization called Clear Foods, which uses genomic technology to analyze the world's foods at a molecular level, ingredient by ingredient just released a report recently that said that it said was designed to look at the accuracy of the content labels of several major hot dog brands and a new port a new report however adds extra meaning to the phrase you don't want to know how the sausage gets made that's for sure uh, apparently human dna has been found in hot dogs Uh, Well, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. That may be the least offensive filler found in a tube steak, I'm guessing. Uh, There's also a piece in the slide carousel from Atlantic Monthly, uh, which is uh, it's been venturing off into very interesting uh, territory of late, Atlantic Monthly. Uh, Recently, the August uh, magazine published a story on real vampires, this subculture of uh, people. They're not the undead, but these are people who believe they need to, to feast occasionally on human blood. Uh, And anyway, this latest story that we've posted is titled, If You're Not Paranoid, You're Crazy. And it's all about the rise of the surveillance state. Uh, Also a piece from the London Mail Online uh, that's sure to turn a few heads. The headline in the form of a question, Did Nixon have a gay affair with a mafia fixer? Forget Watergate. A new book claims America's most corrupt president hid a far more personal scandal. Uh, those are just a few of the uh, the stories up on the uh, the slide carousel, strangeplanet.ca, and uh, go to the radio page. Well, uh, speaking of Nixon, we are going to dial back, uh, at least in part to the Nixon era, back even further 
1961 and the uh, the failed invasion of Cuba at the uh, Bay of Pigs, uh, the assassination of JFK in November 63, the attempted break-in at the Watergate Hotel where the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, was headquartered in June of 1972, uh, a number of individuals uh, their names sort of pop up in connection with all three of those events in some capacity. One of them was E. Howard Hunt. Hunt was uh, an American intelligence officer and a writer. Actually, uh, one of his uh, book books uh, was purchased by Warner Brothers in the late 40s and was going to be turned into a movie. Uh, but from 49 to 70, E. Howard Hunt served as a CIA, CIA officer Along with G. Gordon Liddy and others, Hunt was one of the Nixon White House plumbers, a secret team of operatives charged with fixing leaks, real or perceived causes of confidential administration information being leaked outside uh, parties. Hunt and Liddy engineered the Watergate burglaries and often or other undercover operations for the Nixon administration. In the ensuing Watergate scandal, Hunt was convicted of burglary, conspiracy and wiretapping, eventually serving 33 months in prison. In 2007, shortly before his death in Miami, Florida, Hunt recorded a number of interviews uh, which became known as his deathbed confession. They were published in Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, in that uh, confession, uh, he talked about his role in the JFK assassination and uh, the role of other individuals. He names names. Uh, tonight, E. Howard Hunt's son is here to drop another bombshell, this one about his late mother, it's all contained in his new book, Dorothy, The Murder of E. Howard Hunt's Wife, Watergate's Darkest Secret. St. John Hunt, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Thank you, Richard. Thank you so much. That was a very, uh, a very on, you know, you hit the nail on the head on all your points in your introduction. I've never had such a thorough uh, uh, and precise introduction uh, given to me before, but... Uh, uh, so I commend you on that, and I'm glad to be here on your show, and uh, I'm glad that uh, all your listeners are tuning in. And uh, I just want to say on a, on a personal note that um, I, I, uh, I so much uh, respect and applaud uh, persons such as yourself for the work you do, the tireless work you do in promoting the truth and digging to get at the truth. And, uh, and you, you, you've got a big job, and, uh, and, and you're carrying it quite well. So I, from me to you as a person, I thank you very much. Oh, well, I, I, I appreciate that, and I, and I thank you for joining us. For those who, uh, I guess, I don't know, I, I always hate to use this term, but it's just it's one of those terms we use, living under a rock uh, back in 2007, uh, we're, or for, for whatever reason, we're otherwise occupied and, and weren't aware of – uh, your father's uh, deathbed confession. Uh, let's just uh, spend a few moments here setting the table. Uh, I've sort of, you know, given a very, a very, very scant thumbnail sketch of your father's career from 1949 onwards. Um, but, but what he revealed uh, in his his confession. Let's start with with uh, the JFK assassination. Now, okay. at that time, uh, your father was with the CIA, had been involved in certain anti-Castro activities, including the, the, the Bay of Pigs invasion. Um, what did he say in that confession regarding uh, his role 
in the JFK assassination. Many are familiar, of course, with you know the, the false identification of the three tramps. Some thought that your father was one of the tramps. Frank Sturgis was one of the tramps. These were the uh, itinerants that were, were discovered in the, uh, the boxcar uh, adjacent to the grassy knoll. But th- that later turned out to be false. Uh, but what was your father's role in the assassination? Well, my father's role was, <clears throat> excuse me, as an overseer. He 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 used the term bench warmer, um, but uh, it's a, it's a flexible term, and uh, and I feel very strongly that uh, rather than uh, someone who's not engaged but yet sitting on the sidelines with a view to the field, uh, he was very much engaged. Um, and the, you know, the saddest thing about about his deathbed confession is that he was never able to conclude it with me. Uh, number one, due to the fact that we, I lived in California and he lived in Miami, and uh, and uh, there was uh, strong forces at work uh, to keep us um, separate and to prevent these uh, these uh, father and son uh, discussions from from going on. Um, but aside from that, um, <clears throat> what he revealed is very interesting, and uh, it fits right in with the general. Uh, a movement of conspiracy theorists these days uh, to uh, to link Johnson, President <clears throat> Lyndon Johnson, as the chief, uh, the head of the uh, the assassination uh, movement. Um, now, this has to be taken uh, with the understanding that someone like Johnson is not going to be involved in the staging or planning. He's not going to be involved in picking the. Uh, the members of a team. <clears throat> He's going to be involved in actually very, very little. But his most important role, <clears throat> as we've seen in books such as Roger Stone's uh, The Man Who Killed Kennedy, and, and even before that, Barr McClellan's uh, fantastic book, um, uh, what we have to realize is that all, John, all was, that was asked of Johnson was a green light. You know, um, And, of course, Johnson, according to my father, uh, uh, would have stopped at nothing to gain a seat as the president of the United States. Um, in fact, within a week after Dallas, if Kennedy had lived, uh, JFK and his brother Bobby, who was attorney general, um, had already in the works a plan not only to remove Johnson from the vice presidential uh, ticket, but in fact um, to uh, to continue their investigation in the various Johnson scandals, uh, some of which were uh, related to the uh, cotton uh, depletion allowance in Texas, the oil depletion allowance, uh, the way that Johnson um, falsely uh, became a congressman back in the 40s uh, through the stuffing of uh, ballot boxes. Uh, They had their witnesses lined up, they had their their persons, and they were going to proceed to um, not only investigate Johnson, but to prosecute him. So your so, your your um, um, your father attended a, a number of meetings in a safe house in Florida prior to November sixty three, uh, yes. and there was in attendance, uh, I, I believe there was a um, sort of a high ranking member of the um, uh, Cuban uh, Florida Cuban uh, uh, community, a Cuban exile, uh, and he heard sort of, well, what, what exactly was he told during that 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 meeting? Well, in in the summer of 1963, my father was asked uh, by uh, Frank Sturgis uh, to meet with David Morales and uh, and attend uh, a meeting. It actually turned into two meetings at uh, safe houses in and around Miami. Um, and when my father showed up, uh, Frank Sturgis was there, Morales was there, Vesiana was there, 
uh, and my father, of course, was there. He um, he then listened to these this uh, this scenario that they were asking his support in uh, to uh, assassinate a uh, a top level executive in the United States. And uh, when my father asked, "Well, who is it that we're that we're talking about here?" and they said, uh, "It's that son of a bitch, President Kennedy." Uh, then everything was out on the table, and um, in the series of, of uh, these meetings in safe houses, uh, it was uh, rela- relayed to him that this came all the way through the, to the top through the men at the meeting, William Harvey, who was uh, an equal of my father's in the CIA, uh, and above him would have been uh, David Atlee Phillips, Cord Meyer, and then Lyndon Baines Johnson. And, uh, you know, it was, it was very frustrating at the time to, um, uh, to, to have this, this, you know, this dynamite, uh, uh, you know, realization coming from my father and, and then not be able to have all the time I needed to follow up on it. But, I can imagine. Um, Listen, little uh, by little, the, you know, it came out that uh, another thing my father told me was that this was not the only group that was forming uh, to assassinate Kennedy, that there were several uh, teams being assembled. Oh, I think they were lined up around the block for their their chance to take a shot at the president. Uh, there was oh, no I'm, love I'm lost sure in many were. groups. <laughs> he said there was a team uh, uh, in, in, that was going to um, uh, uh, assassinate him in Chicago. That's right. Cold. Listen, uh, St. John, I've got to take a quick timeout. We'll, uh, we'll come back okay. and continue to talk with the son of the late E. Howard Hunt right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. St. John Hunt, son of the uh, infamous Watergate co- uh, conspirator and CIA operative E. Howard Hunt, is uh, with us on the program. Uh, and uh, St. John Hunt's website is St. John, and that's Saint spelled out S-A-I-N-T, johnhunt.net, stjohnhunt.net. We've also linked up to that, uh, up to the uh, website. Just click on uh, St. John's name on uh, the website here at strangeplanet.ca on the radio page, and that'll take you right there as well. And uh, his book is Dorothy, The Murder of E. Howard Hunt's Wife, Watergate's Darkest Secret. Um, now, uh, we want to get to, to, uh, to Dorothy, but uh, I wish we had, you know, five, six hours here. We could talk about JFK for that amount of time. But just very quickly before we move on to Watergate, uh, your, your father um, speculated on who the shooter uh, may have been. And this was a, um, was a French assassin, I believe, hired by the mob, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, he... Uh he, uh, he gave me some handwritten notes uh, that, that he had been uh, working on uh, uh, outlining things like the chain of command and uh, and, and the, uh, the people that he that he knew to be involved in this particular team. Uh, and on this uh, piece of paper, he wrote um, French con dot man, uh, grassy knoll. And the name he scribbled was something uh, looking like a, Sartre or Sarté, and of course this turns out to be uh, Lucien Sarté, who was uh, brought into the assassination by William Harvey when Harvey was uh, 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 <laughs> disgraced by uh, Bobby Kennedy uh, and sent to be a uh, deputy station chief of the Rome uh, CIA office. Uh, he traveled, uh, he met uh, various mafiosi there in Rome and then traveled to Marseille, uh, to recruit uh, assassins for his executive action um, 
Deep Cover program, uh, which which used strictly non-American mafiosi uh, as as uh, as assassins. And of course, uh, Lucien Sarté had a reputation at the time as being one of the Corsican underground's uh, top uh, assassination uh, operatives, and uh, and that's who brought uh, Sarté into the team. Your father, I mean, there was no love lost with with, uh, with your dad with Kennedy either, though, was there? I mean, your dad was no, not at all. He 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 hated Kennedy, and uh, he went to. My father died feeling proud of of, uh, of the fact that uh, the people he knew and people he was involved with, an operation that he was involved with, took Kennedy out. How does that make you uh, feel? That makes me feel. It, it's really strange. This this whole thing, you know, about my parents and like all the stuff they were into, is just so. I just. Um, I mean, obviously, I accept it. I, I have no real choice in the matter. Um, but uh, it just—I mean, no one wants to be the son of the, of a person that was, you know, involved in the assassination of JFK. I don't wear like a badge. I—I I, I, don't—I'm not shamed by it. But um, I, I just—I don't know. It, it's a mixed bag of feelings. It's probably too too intense to even go into. I try not to even. No, I can appreciate that. Listen, who? Who wants to think of their parents in in that in that light? That must be an incredible, uh, difficult thing for you. Um, Watergate. Something has always puzzled me. Uh, here we have uh, this um, special division, and, and Nixon, you know, the the plumbers. Uh, these are, you know, these your dad and, and Sturgis. These were pretty elite guys, right? I mean, and yet it almost seemed like this, almost like they. It was intended for them to get caught, that there was something else going on with Watergate. Was it an, a new type of assassination to bring down Nixon by other means? Was there something else we don't understand about what – this wasn't just a simple attempt you know, to, to get into the DNC and, and you know, steal some documents and, and, and do some wiretapping, was it? No, no. Uh, of course it wasn't. And, and, and I, I wish I could, I could tell the uh, – all the secrets about Watergate, but Watergate was was just one operation of a of a vast plan uh, under the uh, name of Gemstone, and uh, this was a an over million dollar budgeted uh, approved by the Attorney General John Mitchell, and we we uh, of course assume Richard Nixon. Uh, you know, John Mitchell's not going to approve anything that that Richard Nixon doesn't know of. And as a matter of fact, Nixon and my father had known each other since 1957, uh, when. Um, when uh, uh, Richard Nixon was on a Latin American, South American goodwill tour, uh, my father got a chance to uh, to uh, meet uh, President Eisenhower as well as uh, as his Vice President Richard Nixon. And this is this this is this is the important link between the Bay of Pigs and and the Kennedy assassination and Watergate. And that link is the is what my father was holding on President Nixon to blackmail him or to pressure him into continuing to pay hush money to my father who and my mother actually to her personally who then would distribute it throughout uh the the Cubans uh James McCord and his family Gordon Liddy and his family and and, and our own family and um so she she was uh she was in up to her neck in intelligence operations anyway she'd been uh, CIA uh, OSS Trained uh, a long time ago in 1945, stationed in Bern, Switzerland. Worked for Alan Dulles in, in Switzerland. Uh, moved on to Shanghai. She um, tracked and uh, secured uh, vast assets of the Nazis 
throughout many countries in Europe in the late 40s. So she was accustomed to intelligence work, but in this last period of her life, she served as the, the, the bag lady, they called her, uh, picking up, um, you know, uh, she, she'd uh, be at a phone booth, a, a call would come in at 11 p.m., uh, directing her to a specific location, say the Greyhound Terminal in D.C. She'd go there, and uh, at the appropriate uh, phone booth, there'd be a key taped underneath that, which would correspond to a box, and uh, in the box would be uh, a satchel full of cash. And then she would go about uh, dividing it and spreading it out uh, to the Cubans and all the Watergate defendants. Um, but uh, what my father had on Nixon was the fact that he had been, as vice president, the green light to the illegal uh, formation of an assassination group called Operation 40 that, uh, that was directed to uh, assassinate um, foreign leaders, dignitaries, diplomats, um, you know, people that, uh, that the CIA deemed uh, unfriendly to the United States cause. Like Allende and, in Chile. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, that's a perfect example. And, uh, of course, Kennedy and his brother Bobby inherited this, this, uh, this team. And, uh, you know, it was run partially by my father. It was run by William Harvey. And uh, some of the members of the team uh, are the same people that turned up in the Watergate. As Frank Sturgis, Bernard Barker, uh, uh, you know, uh, Felix Rodriguez was involved. There's a list of uh, 40 to 70 operative, Cuban operatives of Operation 40, which were trained as assassins uh, for the CIA. How, how um, involved was your father in the overthrow of uh, Arbenez in, in Guatemala? Oh, he was, he was the man. He was the primary guy that ran that whole operation. Uh, that's where he really made his bones with the CIA, and they, uh, uh, he, that was, a, um, that was a, a marvelously engineered coup. Uh, I mean, I'm looking at it from their point of view, but it was, uh, it was just uh, uh, smooth as ice. Uh, you know, they, they ran this guy down uh, with uh, false tape recordings of... Um, of, of, of bombers flying overhead and machine gun fire and bombs blowing up and stuff. And it was all done on tape. None of it was real. Oh my. And they, they uh, had so frightened uh, the, uh, the president of, of uh, Guatemala that, uh, that he stepped down and was later, of course, rounded up by CIA people. And, uh, and and murdered, as far as I know. Well, this, uh, this, so this, this direct hit... uh, murder of another 14,000. This, this CIA, were, uh, sorry, this CIA hit team then that that Nixon uh, sort of orchestrated. Uh, this was this was the the um, what they had on your dad and your mother had this information on Nixon, right? Uh, and, and Nixon feared that this the same team that was sent against Castro and uh, Lumumba in the Congo and Allende in Chile and all these different places. The same team, or members of the same team, turned their guns to kill Kennedy. Now that doesn't make Nixon, you know, a, a murderer uh, himself, but Nixon felt that uh, that if this were to come out, that it would literally be not only the end of his political career, but he very well could be brought against, you know, in charges and impeached. Well, it is interesting. Nixon, you know, the only person on the planet, I mean, the only person on the planet who, who always claimed he couldn't remember where he was November 22nd, 1963. Was he in that meeting with Clint Murchis at Clint Murchison's place with LBJ, as Madeleine Duncan Brown always asserted, uh, who was the mistress of LBJ? Was Nixon there? Yes. 
I don't know. Um, I really don't know. I think I think a lot of people kept Nixon out of the loop because they just didn't take him seriously. Oh, interesting. In 1963, Nixon was, you know, I mean, despite his position in the White House, um, you know, I just don't think he was taken very seriously. And certainly Nixon, because of his religious, uh, was he a Mormon or something like that, his upbringing? I believe his background he, uh, uh, was a Quaker. Quaker, that's right. Well, th- those guys are, are, are seriously, you know... Uh, you know, devout to pretty straight laced. Pretty straight laced. I think yeah. Nixon always always relied on people around him, such as um, you know the mafia and such as his top 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 lieutenants or his top counselors, Charles Colson and Haldeman and Ehrlichman, to take care of things that Nixon wanted taken care of, by just a little nod, a little prod, a little a little mention of something here and there. You know, and if you listen to the uh, to the Nixon tapes, the transcripts, uh, you can see that the, the person, the, the thing that Nixon feared most during this first part of Watergate, when everything was kind of breaking breaking loose, was my father. I mean, he just kept going on and on about, we have to pay Hunt, we have to keep Hunt quiet, Hunt knows too much, you open up that scab, there's going to be a lot of pus that comes out, it's going to make a lot of people unhappy, Hunt has to be paid, Nixon's going on ranting, how much, I wonder, if we could get a million dollars. I can get a million dollars. I know where to get a million dollars right now. We have to pay Hunt. Keep him quiet. Nobody around Nixon knew what he was talking about, knew why uh, E. Howard Hunt was so so much of a threat to Nixon. Well, that's the reason why. Uh, and beside the reason that my father and mother had been threatening the White House directly to continue uh, you know, payments uh, by saying that they had evidence that uh, would ensnare all the White House top echelon. Mitchell, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Nixon, Colson, uh, into not only the Watergate activity, but many, many other illegal uh, activities that they had done on behalf of President Nixon. But during this era, during the Nixon or the, the, the Watergate era, your, your father was sort of an advisor to Nixon. Was this a case of keep your enemies close? Is that what uh, my Nixon father was an advisor to whom? Well, wasn't he uh, sort of an, an advisor to Nixon during this, this, this period? No, I wouldn't call him an advisor. I would say that Nixon picked my father, which he did personally, to head up the uh, special uh, brand-new White House uh, Internal Investigations Unit, uh, dubbed the Plumbers. Right. And this is because Nixon had asked the FBI for help, and he'd asked the CIA for help, and they both had refused his requests to... Uh, do things like uh, wiretap, uh, uh, you know, leftist uh, politicians or movie actors, uh, uh, you know, that uh, that kind of thing. And they just they just didn't want to help Nixon at all. So Nixon said, "The hell with it. I'm gonna I'm gonna have my own I have my own investigation team." And so they, Nixon uh, chose my father because he, you know, he had met him in '57 and he knew my father's reputation as someone uh, that could be very discreet, but also someone that could handle the, the dirtiest of operations, the, the, wet, the wet operations, the assassinations and things like that. Did your father ever speak to you about uh, Hillary Clinton, who I believe was counsel to George Herbert Walker Bush during the Watergate hearings? No, he never spoke about Hillary Clinton, but I, I have found out that uh, she was, on the, uh, uh, she was uh, active during the Watergate hearings. And uh, as a matter of fact, she was caught in a... In a uh, and a horrible lie that she had, uh, uh, you know, put out there about uh, there being no no precedent for uh, Nixon's uh, refusal to uh, to uh, you know to give up his tapes and, and, and such. Uh, 
uh, she had uh, commandeered some files and hidden them, and then she lied about it. So, so well, Hillary been... Clinton goes back as far as Watergate as being a, a compulsive liar. <laughs> almost. It, has, it has been suggested by some assassination researchers that uh, Hillary used her position and had access to uh, files pertaining to the JFK assassination that she was ordered to go in and expunge George Herbert Walker's name uh, from a lot of uh, documents pertaining to the JFK assassination. Do you know, have you heard anything about that? Well, I haven't heard of that in, in particular, but I do know for a fact that um, that the money that the, uh, that the Cuban, uh, that the Cuban crew um, uh, had in their pockets at the time of their arrest inside the DNC at the Watergate uh, complex could be directly linked in a paper trail to George Herbert Walker Bush. All right. On that note, we'll uh, take a time out, come back with St. John Hunt, son of the late E. Howard Hunt, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Uh, St. John Hunt is with us, a son of the late Watergate conspirator E. Howard Hunt. And um, let's, uh, let's shift gears and, uh, and talk about uh, your mother, Dorothy. Um, died in a, uh, a plane crash, 1972. Give us the particulars. That was a flight out of uh, O'Hare Airport, was it not, or Chicago? Uh, it, came in, it was coming into uh, O'Hare Airport, and then it was uh, uh, redirected uh, in, at the last minute uh, to Midway, which was a much older uh, airport uh, without the, uh, the, the modern uh, radar uh, uh, facilities and other, uh, other modern uh, uh, technology that uh, O'Hare uh, had going for them. How many aboard um, the plane? Pardon me? How many aboard the plane? Um, I think aboard the plane were um, 70 people, I believe. Let's see. Um, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of innocent people. Uh, uh, well, um, now, the particulars, where was your – give us the, the, um, the chron- chronology here. W- you know, what, where was your mother going? What, uh, what did she have well, on her person and so this, forth? This was a – was at the height of the of the war. I call it the war between uh, my parents and, and Richard Nixon. And this war was uh, was basically uh, that the promises that uh, Nixon had made to my father uh, to um, to provide large amounts of cash, and also the uh, po- probable of the probability of of clemency. Uh, that was that was another uh, promise that Nixon dangled to my father. Um, <clears throat> so um, they had been uh, directly threatening the White House. They had evidence to blow the White House out of the water, including uh, and especially uh, President Nixon and his top uh, level advisors, uh, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and John Mitchell and Charles Colson. Uh, my mother had already, for some time, been serving as a bag woman to trans to pick up cash and transfer cash to the different Watergate defendants. She had uh, told me uh, that um, that she felt uh, that this was a losing situation, but that she didn't know what else to do. Um, that she was being followed. That uh, she feared for her life. And um, so, on this flight to Chicago, she had with her the canceled checks the Mexican bank, which linked the, the, uh, the, the money uh, to fund Watergate and the other operations directly to uh, the community to re-elect the president, and then beyond that to George H.W. Bush, 
um, who was a major uh, supplier of uh, funds to uh, Nixon's committee to reelect the president. Um, she had also the, uh, the the memos and the cables that my father had had uh, had kept and copied over the years, linking Nixon with the uh, Operation Forty Group that uh, that were uh, uh, that were uh, sent to assassinate uh, foreign leaders. And Nixon felt that uh, these same gunmen had been turned on President Kennedy, and he was completely just freaked out that if, that if this came out, that uh, that you know it was going to be the end of his career. And my mother knew she was being followed. So if, if people in the White House, it was evident that, that, that they knew that Dorothy was going on that plane. Now, what, what struck me initially about this, uh, the crash of this, uh, this United Airlines was that it was less than 24 hours later, after the crash, Nixon, just out of the blue, appoints one of his most loyal uh, henchmen, Eagle Bud Crow, K-R-O-G-H, to the position of Undersecretary of Transportation the very next day, not even 24 hours. Uh, Eagle Crow then is in the position to oversee the Department of Transportation, which oversees the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, which is the sole investigating body for airline crashes. So Crow now is in the position not only to guide the investigation that the NTSB is doing on that crash, but also to include or exclude pertinent information about the crash and keep Nixon informed as to the particulars of the investigation. That That's number one red flag that went up. Uh, number two was the fact that uh, uh, in all of history, the first time there was 50 FBI agents on the ground at the crash site within 40 minutes of the crash. Now, first of all, the FBI has no jurisdiction whatsoever on domestic airline crashes. None. Uh, the fact that they could have 50 FBI agents on the ground within less than an hour mm. at, the, at the crash site is completely without precedent. And in a letter which I have from John Reed, who was the chairman of the National Transportation Safety Board, to FBI Director William Ruckelshaus, Mr. Reed is asking for clarification about certain uh, certain activities that the FBI seemed to to be involved in at the time of the crash. He wanted to know uh, why they were there, what jurisdiction they were calling on to to verify, to justify their being there, and wh- and why they went to the Midway Tower and uh, and, and and took the uh, took the, took the recordings from the tower. That, All right, uh, uh, St. John, i got to take you know? a time out here. Sorry okay. for the uh, intrusion. We will uh, come back on the other side, continue to speak uh, with St. John Hunt, son of former CIA agent, Watergate conspirator E. Howard Hunt. The new book, Dorothy, The Murder of E. Howard Hunt's Wife, Watergate's Darkest Secret. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Uh, back to our conversation with St. John Hunt in just a moment. Just a reminder, only a few days remaining until my next live event, as in the days of Noah, Wednesday, November the 4th. It's an evening event, 7 to 10 p.m., as in the days of Noah at the University of Toronto, St. George campus, the Oise Auditorium. Uh, L.A. Marzulli, author of the Nephilim Trilogy, and Carl Gallops, author of Final Warning, will take the stage with yours truly. 
Uh, and again, that's as in the days of Noah, Wednesday, November the 4th. Go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, and go to the live events page. And all the information is there. You can order tickets online or by phone. All the details there. And again, just a few days remaining, so get your tickets. Hope to see you there, as in the days of Noah. Uh, St. John Hunt, uh, we were talking about um, uh, your mother, Dorothy, and... Um, uh, killed uh, along with some 70 other uh, passengers aboard this uh, jet airliner uh, flying into yeah. Chicago. They found something like $10,000 in her luggage. Uh, now, your 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 belief is that this was um, uh, campaign funds used to pay off families of the Watergate uh, burglars, correct? Oh, absolutely, yeah. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the 10000 was meant uh, to pay uh, off... Uh, a gentleman who lived in Chicago named Michael Stevens. He uh, was the owner of a company uh, named called uh, Stevens Research Labs, and uh, he um, he hand built uh, some of the bugging equipment, wiretapping equipment for the Watergate burglars uh, at the behest of James McCord, because the uh, the the equipment that they had been using, uh, Gordon Liddy uh, was heard to call it Mickey Mouse stuff. It just it just wasn't working right, so. Uh, McCourt said he knew uh, of uh, someone in Chicago that uh, could build uh, really, really high-quality uh, eavesdropping and, and bugging surveillance equipment. Uh, and so this is where Michael Stevens comes in. My mother was on uh, with the $10,000 was uh, meant for him. And Stevens claimed that the, uh, not only was $10,000 for him, but he had called the FBI and told the FBI that uh, he had been receiving threatening phone calls and that uh, that the phone calls uh, mentioned that uh, that the uh, mur- that the death of Dorothy Hunt was a homicide, and that if he didn't keep his mouth shut, he was going to be a victim of the same uh, efforts that uh, Dorothy Hunt had to succumb to. But 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 uh, St. John to take so- out seventy five people to get to your mother. Uh, I mean, in this cloak and dagger world, I think we understand that sometimes you know uh, a wet team comes in, they take out another. Uh, agent in order to keep them quiet or to cover their tracks, but to kill um, 70 people who had nothing to do with it along with your mother. Uh, and some people might sit here and listen to this and say, that's just, you know, that's beyond the pale. I, I mean, I know. How, how common... Uh, you know, people have to understand that that is a classic CIA uh, operational move move uh, to uh, to diffuse the tension from a primary assassination target. In other words, if they would have just shot my mother uh, to keep my father quiet, if they would have shot her on a street corner or uh, kidnapped her and murdered her while she was picking up, you know, money late at night at the Greyhound station, for example, uh, that's just, you know, then then where does the investigation, uh, you know, uh, focus on? It focuses on Dorothy Hunt. But you take out, uh, uh, you know, a building full of people or a plane full of people or a neighborhood or what have you, uh, the attention then, the focus of the attention is so diffused that, um, that it's much, much more difficult to, uh, uh, you, know, to, um, you know, to ascertain that uh, there was only one or two people that, uh, that were the primary targets. Everybody else is just collateral damage. Mm. That's what you have to understand about the CIA, is that not only is that a classic example of, of, of one of their assassination uh, you know, uh, modus operandi, but you have to realize that they don't care about the collateral damage. They just, they just don't care. I mean, you know, uh, this, this threat to, uh, to expose uh, 
the CIA and, and, and Richard Nixon uh, to keep my father quiet. Um, can't take him out. He's too much in the press. And later in life, many, many years later, when I was with my father at his, at his bedside, you know, holding his hand, you know, he, he choked up on, on so many things. And one of them was that, you know, in truth, he had always felt that his wife, Dorothy, my mother, her death was, was not a result of pilot error, but was as a result of, of, a, of a homicide. And he and also it, thought about, he also thought about it could have happened to you or your brother. Yeah, right. He, uh, you know, he said, and the next step after she was killed was to the children, to his children, to us, to four, to four of his original kids. And he was in prison. He couldn't protect us. And, uh, and a week after she was killed, uh, he shut his mouth and pled guilty and never said another word about any of that stuff. No, none, none of this Charles, ended up Charles in the memoir, Bolton, did it? In 1974, was, um, it was quoted in Time magazine as saying that uh, Dorothy Hunt was killed by the CIA. And uh, I had a chance to speak with Mr. Colson um, uh, at the time of my father's death, uh, and I asked him about that quote that Time had on him in this article. And uh, he's, he had a, there was a long pause, and he said, St. John, I, I stand by what I said. Uh, I know that what I said was true, but for your safety and my safety as well, I, I'm, I'm not going to talk about it. But just know that, that I stand by what I said back in 74. And that, you know, that, that brought hair standing up on my, you know, on my neck and stuff. You were a teenager um, during Watergate. What, 16, 17? 17, yeah. 17. All right. How much did you know at that time? I mean, I, I, I've read one account where you were actually involved in, in, in the cover-up. Well, yeah, I was. It was it was interesting because uh, June seventeenth, nineteen seventy two, uh, the the Watergate burglars had been uh, discovered and arrested. And my father, uh, after making a few different stops in and around D.C., he came back home. He woke me up. I was the only other one in the house. The rest of the family and my mother were in Europe, and um, and my father was just looking, you know, very disheveled, uh, sweaty, um, very uh, concerned, and. Uh, he said, um, meet me upstairs in my bedroom and don't ask any questions. So he stomped out of the room and went upstairs and quickly I followed him. And up in the room there, he had two large green suitcases. He said, uh, I need you to go in the kitchen. I need you to get some, uh, some, some spray, some cleaner and some rubber gloves. And I need you to take everything out of these suitcases and, and clean them, clean them down. I don't want, we're looking at fingerprints here. I don't want anything uh, to be left. You have to clean everything in the suitcases and the suitcases themselves. And for the next hour and a half, two hours, that's what I did right in his bedroom as he was making calls and changing to the quick shower, made some calls. Uh, uh, and, um, and then uh, as dawn broke, we, uh, we threw the uh, two suitcases in the back of his uh, 1970 green uh, Firebird, and uh, we drove out to the Potomac Canals, and we threw them into the uh, raging waters. On, on, a, on a personal note, uh, St. John, I mean, what was, while all this is going on, I mean, your, your parents are spies. Uh, was there any normalcy? I mean, was it like your father came home from overthrowing a dictator in South America and it was like, honey, what's for dinner? I mean, was there any normalcy <laughs> in that house? Well, it all seemed normal to me, Richard, you know, because that's, that's what I grew up in. But he was rarely home. And when he was, there was a strict rule of, you know, don't speak until you're spoken to and and, and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, um, were they loving? You know, as, pa- were they loving as, parents? Were they loving? Yes. My mother was very loving, 
very, very loving. My father was just unapproachable, you know, and he was cruel in many ways, very cruel uh, to his children. But what, I mean, we, um, we, we, I, I want to be careful that we, we don't paint, you know, the CIA. I mean, they did, they did some good work, right? There are some heroes with the CIA and the FBI. We tend to think of them as all sort of these thugs. But I mean, did your parents do anything? They surely part of what they were doing they felt was in the national interest. Well, they did. I mean, my father certainly did. Um, you know, the, the whole the whole thing at that time, in that age, was the domino principle. You know, if you, you we, if we let one country in Latin America or wherever uh, succumb to communist influence, then it's only a matter of time before all the other countries are going to fall. And uh, my father and the people in, in his organization, uh, you know, believe that the end justifies the means. But, you know, in, in truth, it all really revolved around greed. Because uh, when I spoke to my father about his involvement in the overthrow of, the, of, the, uh, of, of Guatemala, I said, well, Papa, isn't it true that, uh, that really the real reason that CIA went in there and overthrew that government uh, was because uh, the, uh, the president was going to nationalize some of the land and give something back to the peasants who were basically working for this American corporation uh, United Fruit Company, uh, as, as slaves, basically slave labor. They, they had nothing to show for their years of toil. They, the, the United Fruit Company owned 2 million acres of banana plantations. And when it was found that the president was going to nationalize some of it back to the peasants uh, to give them a little bit of better life quality, uh, Alan Dulles and his brother John Foster Dulles, who is the, the uh, Department of State, and was also on the board of United Fruit Company, uh, said, no, this is not going to happen. And that's been the primary reason and motivation for every CIA operation to invade, secretly invade uh, a country, Iran, uh, you know, you name it, um, and depose the ruler and put in our, our puppet ruler. And our, our rulers we put in turn out to be the most, you know, brutal regime that, that that people have ever heard of, like the Guatemalan. We put in put in uh, put in that guy, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, he's rounding up fourteen thousand citizens that maybe had leftist leaning, uh, you know, uh, ideals and stuff. And uh, and I said, well, Papa, what about the, the fourteen plus thousand people that were murdered uh, by the CIA after that? And he's like, well, that's just part of uh, what happens. That's just, you know, collateral damage. Okay. Not a second thought to it. Just, oh, dear. Yeah. You know. I, I wish we had more time, St. John. Maybe uh, you'll come on the program again. I mean, I would love to talk about... There's so much I'd more love to, to come. be on your program again. It's, it's been great. I'd love to talk about the CIA in, in involvement in Mockingbird and, and uh, whether some of these, uh, Team 40 and so forth, whether these are still operational. And really, has, has anything changed in the, in the 40 years since uh, uh, Nixon? I, I, I think not. Perhaps. Very little. I think it's only gotten worse. I fear that you are correct. Uh, again, the website, stjohnhunt.net, the book Dorothy, The Murder of E. Howard Hunt's Wife, Watergate's Darkest Secret. A pleasure meeting you, St. John. Thank you for this. A pleasure meeting you, too. All right. The website, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T. Don't forget to download the free Conspiracy Show app at Google Play and iTunes. And as always, follow the truth. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. 
Thanks for inviting me into your home. Your long-haul truck, your RV, camper, taxi cab, that great, that uh, greasy spoon just off the I-90, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Hope you had a happy Halloween. I don't know, is it just me, or is Halloween becoming so commercial? It's just we've lost sight of the true meaning. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, great weather for trick-or-treating, though, I must say. My little guys, very quickly, my uh, twin boys, uh, one of them went out as a, uh, a ghost. He calls himself a ghost rider. He was a, um, uh, a, a cowboy, like a sheriff. Had the the six uh, the six shooter the holster the cowboy boots the hat the uh, sheriff's badge, uh, but his face was painted to look like a ghost. Uh, and then the other little fellow, I thought this was quite clever. Uh, both of them are taking piano lessons, and uh, my one little guy is learning Brahms lullaby. So he decided he wanted to be Johann Brahms, but not just Johann Brahms. He wanted to go because it's Halloween. He wanted to be Zombie Brahms. So uh, the mighty Aphrodite found this great, you know, wig because all the great composers had the wild hair. Uh, and we found him this ruffled shirt. And, um, and we, um, we found a musical score from Brahms' Requiem, which is kind of fitting for Halloween, right? It's funeral music. So he was, he's wearing the sheet music around his neck with a quill and everything. And he's zombie Brahms. Uh, so then I thought, oh, okay, so you're a decomposer. But I'm bumped. All right. Hey, just a reminder again, my live event, as in the days of Noah, fast approaching uh, this coming Wednesday, November the 4th, at the University of Toronto, St. George Campus on Bloor. That's the Oise Auditorium, to be exact. Wednesday, November 4th, as in the days of Noah. And I will be welcoming uh, two phenomenal speakers, L.A. Marzuli, author of the Nephilim Trilogy, and Carl Gallops, author of Final Warning, Understanding the Trumpet Days of Revelation. Uh, it's an evening event, 7 to 10 p.m., just a few more days to go. Uh, strangeplanet.ca. Strangeplanet.ca. Click on the live events page for more info and order tickets online or by phone. It's all right there. Uh, and you can also get them at the door night of the event, as in the days of Noah. L.A. Marzuli, Carl Gallops. Hope to see you there. What happens to our loved ones when they die? Uh, can we still communicate with them uh, after they've breathed their last? Before it happened to her, Kimberly Bouchard had never really even considered whether it was possible. So when this ordinary wife and mother started hearing from her father after he died, she was as surprised as anyone. Weaving together her personal stories with the messages she received, contact offers insight into the bonds that connect us as well as comfort and hope to anyone who are themselves grieving, grieving the loss of a loved one. Again, she details her story in a new book entitled Contact, A Dad's Communication from the Other Side with His Daughter. Kimberly Bouchard, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, hi, Richard. Thank you. I'm fine. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Uh, tell us about your dad. Who was he and um, uh, your relationship and, and then how you lost him? Sure, yeah. Uh, well, my dad uh, was one of my best friends here on this uh, planet, and uh, he was also a teacher. We had several uh, interests that uh, brought us together in conversation and, and doing things together, and uh, both my parents were a big part of uh, our family and uh, we had uh, a lot of fun together. He had a great sense of humor, 
And, you know, uh, unbeknownst to us, uh, he developed a brain tumor, and uh, after 15 months, seeing him age 30 years in front of our eyes, he passed away at 69. And, but, you know, he um, actually was a big listener of Art Bell's show, and uh, so he kind of got me into science, into thinking beyond the box, really. Um, But he was just a wonderful man, a a stand-up guy. And... Uh, when he passed, uh, were you were you with him at the time? You know what? Unfortunately, our family wasn't. Uh, we were away on vacation, and we had been told that he was stable enough and that not to worry. And lo and behold, he did pass away uh, just the night before we were getting off. Actually, our first cruise ship with our kids. So, yeah, it was a little tough. Uh, and then. We started a very long journey, a three-and-a-half, four-day journey drive back home, and that's when some very significant things started to happen. <laughs> I, we'll get into that, but I just, I just want to say, and, and you already know this, I'm sure, and many people have, uh, sometimes, you know, we, when we want to be there with uh, relatives, we want to be there right to the end, and, and because we're there sometimes, they hold on, mm-hmm. and they want to go. They want to mm-hmm. let go, and sometimes... You know, when we when we leave them alone, that then they have sort of they feel like they have permission to go. I think that's what right. happens in a lot of cases. And you know, uh, I was in touch when we realized that things were not going very well. I uh, did call back home regularly, and I did let him know that it's okay to go. Uh, the rest of the family was around, and I just, God forbid, didn't want him holding on and suffering because we weren't there. So I made sure that by phone, by email, that uh, he did know to, to go to go home. All right. And then, as you, you say, uh, within a few days, three, four days, strange things started to happen. Mm-hmm. What was mm-hmm. the first thing? You know, there, there were several uh, things that, that started, and... Uh, I can either start with first sign or the first uh, visit. And, you know, I think for the sake of this uh, conversation, we'll start in chronological order. Uh, the first visit actually, believe it or not, started three months before he passed. Uh, in um, He was in a comatose state. And he did come for a visit uh, to me to give us sort of a life review, our lives reviewed together. Um, and I'm going to fast forward it now then to the first sign. So we were on the road, long drive back. I was beside myself, a lot of agony, a lot of anguish. Um, you know, just wanted to know where my dad was. And uh, so I made my husband pull over, went to a bookstore, just desperate to find something, anything. And, you know, I was reading uh, along. Uh, my husband was driving, and I did not tell him about my desire and my conversation my inner voice with my dad, just asking for a sign, please, you know, anything to show me that you're okay. As most of us that lose somebody will want some kind of measure of, uh, I guess, consolation that they are that they are okay. And I remember stopping at a page in a, my book and had, you know, thought, oh, I'm going to find a sign as soon as I look up. And I uh, wasn't too disappointed because I thought that's kind of a... a, a tall order to right out of the gate ask for something 
and I was reading, and 20 minutes later, my husband said, Kim, look out the, the side window there. And there, right in front of me, there was a billboard sign, black and white, that said, life is short, eternity isn't God. And then I heard my dad chuckle, and he said, well, you said a sign, didn't you? And that wow. was Wow, you heard beginning. that. You heard his voice. Yes. Yes. Hmm. And... You know, I never uh, shared any of this with the children for quite a while because I was kind of taken aback, actually. And as we progressed in our journey home, there were more and more things uh, as the days, as the weeks, as the months and years went by, things continued. Uh, there was something that I will tell you about very significant um, that still has my father uh, leaving for me. And I know there are other people that have things of this nature happening. I'm not too sure to what extent, but I, will, I would like to share with you. It's called the Nickel Saga, the beginning. And this was probably about six months later. But in the meanwhile, I mean, there had been a lot of other things going on that are, are in my book. But the Nickel Saga, the beginning, is pretty significant. We were heading out to one of our favorite campgrounds that... We had camped with my parents and actually was the last campground. Um, the night before, I'm like, okay, I want to hear from you again, Dad. Uh, I, I randomly pick, if you are around, please show me blue feathers and nickels together. Just something so way up, off the top uh, would be a very tall order. Uh, the next night, uh, we are camping. We are heading to the amphitheater to uh, watch the, the, sh the program that they have in the parks, the provincial parks. And prior to that, I had made a quick pasta dinner and microwaved the tomato sauce. And this is fairly significant, the fact that I microwaved the tomato sauce with no problem. So we went to the amphitheater, and I just stopped in my tracks, Richard, because there on the stage was a feathered mascot. They were talking about birds, blue feathers, and a whole jar of coins with nickels in it sitting right there together. I'm like, what? You know, like, kind of like, what's, go what's going on here? And I'm Isn't like, that interesting? yeah, I think that's too easy, Dad. And actually, retrospect, that wasn't easy at all. So as we are going back to uh, the camper uh, after the show, I said, Dad, okay, listen, let's, uh, how about this? I made a deal with my dad. I said, listen, if you are around, you want to show me you're, you're around. I want to see a nickel in a very strange place, uh, unsuspecting place. We get back to the motorhome, ready to uh, play a board game, because it's still fairly early, uh, was microwaving some butter for the popcorn. All of a sudden, Richard, the microwave just started sparking like crazy. I'm thinking, okay, what's going on here? I tidy it up, thinking maybe something splattered on there from before, give it another go. Microwave's really sparking this time. So I go on my tiptoes, open the microwave, and start feeling around in the microwave. And Richard, in the very back of the microwave, was a nickel. Oh, oh, oh dear. Uh-huh. And I was, oh, uh, boy. I was shocked, actually. I was like, what the heck? You know, so that was the beginning. And I will tell you, every time my dad wants me to know he's around. I mean, there's other things that he will do for sure, but when there is a nickel in a very strange, unsuspecting place, that is my dad's calling card. And boy, has he left some in unbelievable 
places. What, what is it with the dearly departed and loose change? I, I mean, know. I hear this over and over again. It's fascinating. I Listen, know. Kimberly, and, you uh, know, I didn't want to do pennies because I'm like, well, everybody finds pennies around. You know, I didn't <laughs> think that'd be significant enough. So I just, I really wanted to challenge him. All, sure. All, you know, right from the get-go. Got to take a quick time out, Kimberly. Stay sure. put. We'll be back in a moment. Contact sure. a dad's communication from the other side with his daughter, Kimberly Bouchard, my guest, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Uh, just a quick programming note. Next week on the program, uh, Dr. Lana Marconi, filmmaker. Uh, it's called The Resonance, and it's a documentary film featuring sort of a who's who of ufologists, including Dr. Stanton Friedman, our good friend Victor Vigiani, uh, along with uh, noted Canadian ufologist Grant Cameron and uh, the Honorable Paul Hellyer. Uh, in fact, I'll be uh, sort of presenting that uh, film, the debut, uh, later on this month, November the 21st. Uh, and also next week on the program, uh, George Freund, a popular uh, conspiracy podcaster from the Conspiracy Cafe, will talk about some Canadian federal election skullduggery uh, and paranormal investigator Rosemary Ellen Guiley returns with her paranormal news roundup. All right, back to our conversation with Kimberly Bouchard, the author of Contact, a dad's communication from the other side with his daughter. Uh, I, I meant to ask you about the, um, the, the, uh, the appearance of these nickels. Uh, mm-hmm. You would ask for a sign and you would ask, you know, for these nickels. Now, how, what, was the, what was the connection? Why did the, at, when you went to this amphitheater at this provincial park, why did they have this bucket of nickels on stage? Did you ever find oh. out? Well, I guess the university students that do the program uh, were hoping for some uh, donations or tips or, or whatever, and it just happened to be uh, something about birds and, and this mascot and blue feathers. And, you know, I, I just it just stopped me in my tracks. I was blown away. And then, and then I thought, okay, now there's, there's other coins in there. So I'm, I'm like, I've been, I'm a bit of a doubter. And so I, I kind of uh, thought I'm going to just clarify things here a little bit. And uh, so that's, that's why I narrowed it down to Nichols. But yeah, that's, that's why that was there. Now, uh, do you have siblings, uh, Kimberly? I do, yes. And were you, I mean, I know you didn't tell your children right away, but what about your siblings? Were they having any similar experiences? You know, um, the only thing that I know of is my sister, uh, about a year or two ago, had um, a little bit of a a contact. Uh, My mom a few times, uh, my nephew a little bit, and my youngest son had uh, contact uh, twice. With, uh, communicated with my dad. Um, actually, he and I shared um, a night visit from my dad. And uh, then the rest of my, uh, my children were privy to seeing things after they you know, found out after a while. But uh, I'm primarily the one having all the communication. And Richard, it did bother me at first because I'm thinking, why me? You know, what the heck? Uh, there's a few of us um, that he could communicate with, I guess, I'm thinking, but I don't quite know how it works. And well, was there a special bond? I mean, no, no one mm. likes to think that, you know, they're the, you're the favorite or whatever, but was oh, there a special bond really? with you and your dad? Or? I would never say that. Uh, you know what? We just, we had a really good relationship, and not saying that he didn't have it with, with my brother and sisters, but I can only speak for myself that, you know, we had a great time, and, and uh, they, we would always go on vacation. We'd have our folks with the kids, and um, sort of the more the merrier, and I, I, I would think 
that maybe because I'm a bit more open to this, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I can't even figure it out. I just kind of rolled with it after a while, not try not to feel bad or guilty about it because ultimately um, I would share uh, a little bit with my mom for sure and, and my husband and then uh, with one of my sisters, a couple of my sisters that I would share a little bit, but yeah. <laughs> and, and before your dad, me, I guess. before your dad passed and even before he was sick, you mentioned that, you know, something that, that, that the two of you shared was sort yeah. of a, a love for, you know, Art Bell and the old coast to coast radio. Did you ever discuss with them, maybe even in a sort of a, a, a kidding fashion that, you know, if you, you know, or he said to you, if I, when I go, I will, if there's any way of reaching out to you, I will, I'll try. You know what, um, Richard, I so wish I could have gone back to talk about that. I actually didn't because unfortunately the brain tumor just had him. And, you know, I will share with you something though, that, um, the, as I said, three months before he left us, he was in a coma for about a week. And I didn't quite know what was going on this one evening. Uh, it felt like my dad was kind of, for lack of a better word, is trying to get inside my head. And the following night, he managed to come visit me. And we, I don't know, for some reason, we as human beings just aren't always open. To, like, I'm not a psychic. I'm not a medium. And the only way maybe to re, to get to me in, a, in, a, in an actual visit was for me to be asleep. And... I'll never forget this. He was sitting on a stump in the forest. I was sitting on a log, and he was whittling away, and we were chatting, and we were going through our life together, and there was actually a screen just hanging in midair that we'd refer to, and we kept talking about our life and then referring back to the screen. And at that time, I had no idea. I thought, oh, this is just a dream. You know, I wasn't too sure what the significance was, but I was very, I felt very comforted, actually. And Dad had reassured me things are going to be tough, but, but they will be okay. And it wasn't until a few days after that that I ended up calling my mom. I said, hey, Mom, has Dad ever whittled before? Because I thought that was a very strange thing for him to do. And she said, yeah, he used to whittle all the time. Why? Mm. And then I told her. And the significance of that I took is that I had to verify. I had to validate what he was doing because I wouldn't have known about right, it. Right. I wouldn't have had an idea. But he needed me to verify with my mom that, hey, that was him. And he was doing something he loved. And I think the second thing is that I shared that with my husband. And I think Dad was kind of checking, maybe testing the waters to see if I'd have the support of my husband, which I did. He thought it was pretty cool. But again, I had no idea what was going on. I just sort of thought this was a random whatever I, I i'm you know even in the 11th hour of finishing my book i was still kind of doubting and thinking what in the world has been going on here you know just questioning it all uh okay so let's just i mean i could listen to these stories all night because i and i'm sure many people are the same you know the, the, the drawing a great deal of of, of comfort uh, from all of this and it, it's fascinating uh, to hear these these stories you mentioned, you know, the the, uh, the nickels, uh, the appearance of the nickels. Uh, give us a few more. Sure. Um, well, I will tell you about uh, the nickel sag. Uh, well, I'll call it nickels in Texas. And uh, I had taken the children uh, to a competition, a dance competition in in Dallas, where my uncle and godfather, my dad's brother, uh, lived, and we were uh, heading out on the. It's called the D A R T. The the Dallas uh, Transit, and in order for you 
you had to get tickets. And so they would be 25 cent increments. So we put in our change, bought our tickets, and we're getting our change back. And uh, by this time, the kids had known, you know, the significance of a nickel. And they, uh, they, they saw what came out of the machine, and they just looked at me with their eyes uh, quite wide. But there, in amongst the quarters, was a lone nickel. So th- there shouldn't be a nickel right, in, right. with my change, you know. There was only quarters supposed to appearing. Um, I, and I'll share one that has uh, got a little bit of humor uh, involved in it, and I'm, uh, because as a busy mom with three kids and a husband, Laundry, gosh, everybody's oh, talisman, I think. I was looking for, um, actually, a clean pair of underwear this particular day. And uh, at that time, I had kept a turquoise uh, little book by my bed um, to record different stories um, or, or keep it in my purse, even, so that I, ne- I never knew when my dad was really going to come out and, and let me know he was around. At any rate, I was just beside myself because I had to be somewhere and I was not finding what I needed. And uh, this particular day, I thought, what the heck, I'm just going to move the couch in our, in our bedroom. We had a fairly large uh, bedroom at the time. I never moved this couch because why, why do we move couches, really, unless we're putting up the Christmas tree or something? So I moved this couch there under this couch that I move maybe once a year. Uh, besides the dust bunnies, there was my coil blue book with a pair of clean underwear on top and a oh, shiny new nickel on wow. top of that. Oh, get out of town. Get yeah. out of town. Oh, my. I'll tell you another uh, quick nickel one, um, because there are, there are lots of other stories, but the, another nickel one, uh, we are big Disney fans, and, of course, they keep things spotless in the rooms. And uh, this one particular time back to Florida, actually, I think it was one of our first times back, maybe the year after Dad had passed away. And uh, we unlocked the door. Our room had just been made up. I went and claimed uh, the bed that my husband and I would be sharing. And Richard, right beside the lamp of the side of the bed uh, that I chose, was a single nickel. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you oh, know, it's, it, 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 it's, you know, in my book, I actually have a photo of the bag of nickels because it, it, it still continues. It's, um, it's overwhelming sometimes in how they're presented, for sure. Uh, aside from the nickels, I mean, yeah. you mentioned one time you, you heard your father's voice yeah. saying, did you see the sign? Yeah. Uh, were there other moments when you, 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 you heard your father's voice? You know what? I did. It was um, quite loud, very distinctive, uh, saying uh, my, my shortened version of my name, Kim. And it, it was interesting because... I thought it was my husband calling from the other room, the actual, the, the bathroom. And uh, because it sort of sounded um, airy, a little bit whispery, but it was very clear. And it sort of sounded like it was coming from far away, like as if he would be, you know, I would get the sound from the vent in the other room. And I, I was like, what, what do you want? You know, <laughs> Is everything okay? And he's like, I didn't say anything. Uh, because it was a man's voice. And, and it didn't dawn on me until it's like, oh, Hey, Dad. <laughs> you know, that's you. Uh, so that, yeah, that was that was kind of neat, and it, it never frightened me. I just kind of, I'd always be taken aback or or a little surprised or bewildered, and um, 
And that that definitely chalked it up, you know, for surprise because I, I didn't expect that at all to happen. Uh, it happened to me once. My father passed nearly 30 years ago. Oh. Uh, I was um, in the bathroom, the ensuite of our bedroom, and, uh-huh. and uh, you know, one of my functions around the house is to kill spiders. Oh. <laughs> so uh, the mighty Aphrodite was in the, in the bedroom and she goes, you know, she would just point up and say, spider. So I knew that those were my marching orders. So I got mm-hmm. out of the bed into the bathroom and I grabbed some tissue, some toilet paper actually. Yeah. Uh, and as I'm leaving the bathroom, I heard my father's voice clear as day, matter of factly, the once and only time I've heard him say, wet it first. Meaning, wet the toilet paper. And that's exactly what my father would have said. Wet the toilet paper first before you get the spider. And I didn't even skip a beat. I just, yep, you're right. I turned on my heels, went back in, wet the uh, tissue, the toilet paper. Isn't uh, that funny? Then came into the uh, bedroom and told the mighty Aphrodite, I just heard my dad. And I wasn't scared. It was just, well, you know, a little bit of uh, fatherly advice. Yeah. You know, and, and some people have asked me if I've been scared ever. I have never been scared. Uh, it's, it's, and I'm a bit, bit of a fraidy cat, too. Um, I, I, I don't know why I'm not scared. I guess maybe because it's, it's not what, what he presents to me and what he does, what he, what he, he it's not frightening for me. I, I just, I can feel him, and it gives me just a lot of comfort. And, and so I'm not, I'm not afraid either. I just think that's so cool because... I want to say, Richard, I know I'm not the only one ex- experiencing this. I don't know to the extent of, of others, and that's one of the reasons why I've got a second book, um, Writing Other People's Stories, uh, and uh, it, this is going to be a series because I don't want people to be afraid of either telling somebody that they have heard from their loved one or you know, continue to hear from their loved ones. I, I want them to be okay with it and know that it's okay and, and know that they're around us, you know, and that's, and it's so candid of them, you know, it's, it doesn't have to big, be any big bruja thing, it's, it's just, you know, telling you what right, to do right. with a spider. I'll remember that next time I see a spider. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any scents, uh, smells, scents that you associated with your father? I don't know if he smoked a pipe or anything like that. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, he didn't smoke anything, but, uh, you know, it's interesting because I have smelt him a couple of times when I've been in my parents' home, uh, and unfortunately, I don't uh, live uh, in uh, near near their house anymore in Canada, so I haven't uh, smelt him anymore, but I do feel him when he is around. I, I do... Gosh, um, if if you have a if we are not going on a break right away, I will share with you uh, something that was pretty significant. Um, well, we've got I, about three minutes, so we can at least start this story, and then if we need to carry it over, we will. Okay, sure. You know, um, we we would accompany my mom to morning mass once in a while, the kids and I, uh, during the week, and uh, I'll never forget. It was probably about. I would say a couple of years even, no, not even two years after Dad had passed, and I was sitting in the pew, and honestly, Richard, I could feel my dad slide into the pew beside me, and I'm like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm start to talk to him, and I, you know, from the beginning, I used to speak out loud, but it just gets too tedious, so I use my inner voice, because I can speak quicker, and he usually reacts faster than I can even get a thought out. But I was saying, you know, I really miss you, and I just 
wish you were here physically. And he's like, well, I'm going to just hang around for a while and just check in, see how things are going. And I was kind of having this little argument saying, it's not good enough. You know, I want you here physically. I, you know, it, it's just not the same. And uh, Richard, probably about five minutes later, my middle uh, child, my son, said, Mommy, look. And I'm starting to poke my head around him thinking it's somebody, you know, he's trying to point out in the pew. And he's like, no. He goes, look up. Now, in that church, probably it's about oh, 30 feet up the or, or more, um, there are long cylindrical lights on probably 10-foot cables. There are no windows that open in the church. There's, save for a couple of doors, you know, to come in. And he point, he's pointing up, and Richard, the light above our family was going in a 10-foot diameter circumference. It hmm. was unbelievable. Like a spotlight. Like a spotlight. And, yeah, it was moving above us, and Dad, I heard Dad say, well, I told you I was going to hang around for a while. Oh, and boy. I really wish I could have come to my senses and, and poked my mom and said, Mom, what, you know, but I didn't. It was just my son and I that watched it for about five minutes, and, and I, w- I, was, I was pretty surprised. And, and at that time, um, you know, my kids were aware that Grandpa kind of, visited us and and did things and i definitely told everybody after about what happened and my my son could concur yeah this this like and that's why i actually i didn't have a photo of that to put in my book but i did um manage to take a photo of it of the church and the light just to show the height and there's no way there's no other explanation of why that light would be moving around us Contact, a dad's communication from the other side with his daughter. Kimberly Bouchard stays with us, and we'll talk more on the other side. The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. All right, a few moments remain with Kimberly Bouchard, the author of Contact, a dad's communication from the other side with his daughter. Um... Obviously, when we lose someone, we feel... uh, you know, pain, a great loss, an emptiness, uh, a hole in our heart. Um, do, it, do you think or do you know uh, or has it been communicated to you that that at least initially they the, the departed also feel that loss of connection with us? You know, Richard, I think it's more that they are caring about us and know how we're feeling. They're, they're, hey, they made it home. They're, they're fine. I don't believe they are feeling any pain of loss, but I know that they care for us and know that we are definitely uh, feeling that. And I think that in knowing that, they, they do want to communicate with us. And one of the things that I've learned in, in talking with other people as well, um, again, I say I'm not, I'm not the only one experiencing this, but... I'm pretty darn sure that most people will have had a sign of their, uh, you know, telling that, letting them know that their their loved one is okay, and maybe just haven't paid attention to it. Uh, it's it's really important for them to make sure that their loved ones try. They're trying to ease our grief, really, uh, letting us know that they're okay. Uh, but uh, un- unfortunately, I guess. We all kind of have to go through loss. There's so many losses uh, uh, in life that we have to learn 
to survive and go through. But no, they're not. They're not feeling any pain. But they are very aware of our pain. Yeah, I mean, and and, and imagine like not being able to, you know, uh, from the other side. If you're if you're if you're witnessing the pain of those that you've left behind that right. I don't know I, I I guess from from this side of the plane <laughs> my perspective yeah. would be that would that must be very difficult you can't because you can't physically interact with these people you can't yeah. hug them or you know dry yeah. their tears that but I suppose I guess the the this this um, this love that you, that, you, that that one feels uh, on the oh. other side I guess just compensates for all of that mm. you know and and one thing that that is something I've learned, too, is, holy cow, the strongest, the strongest power, Richard, is love. Because, you know, when, when they pass, they, they still love us. That does not end. As I said before, that relationship doesn't end. And people have asked me, well, how, you know, how can I communicate or, you know, whatever. Um, and I think people need to realize that, you know, when you love someone, um, that love does not die. And to acknowledge your loved ones, like it's just like we like to be acknowledged here, they're in a different plane now. So they, they want to still be acknowledged and to be open to them and invite them into your life. Uh, and, and I do know, Richard, you know, I was very blessed to have a great dad and a, and a wonderful relationship with, with him here. And I also understand and recognize that some people have not had the best relationships um, with with those that they they possibly loved, you know, and so with, with that, I always tell people, you know, um, just forgive them because they have forgiven you and they wait for you, and they're now love, and that's the bottom line. It, it's 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 enormous in its simplicity, truly. Uh, and and for those that that maybe have uh, have wanted to hear. Uh, yeah. from the other side and have not. I mean, do you have any suggestions how, how they might facilitate that? Other than you mentioned welcoming them, welcoming them into your life. But uh, are there any yeah. steps one can take? You know what? Um, I say just start the conversation and then watch for the signs, and you will know. You will know. I, I, you know, I just actually talked to uh, a neighbor, uh, uh, the son of a neighbor that had just passed away, and I told him about the book, and he said, you know, he goes, to his dad, we were around that neighborhood when his dad passed away a year and a half ago. He said, I can't believe, he goes, the car alarm went off in the garage. And uh, he said, when, when dad died, and he goes, and the same thing happened when mom just passed away, which was actually a couple weeks ago. And, you know, I was like, yeah, that's them. You know, it worked the first time, so they're going to do it the second time. And, and, and so it, it's going to be noticeable. It's going to take you off guard. Um, maybe you're going to hear uh, a, a song that was uh, specific between you and that person, uh, something that will jog you into thinking about them is they're kind of poking you from the other side. Uh, so, I mean, there's no real step-by-step. It's so different and it's so personal for everyone. But just start the conversation just say, hey, you know, I've been thinking about you. Uh, I'm, I'm here. You know, could you, you know, show me you're okay. Show me a sign. And, you know, I'd then say to watch, just to watch and, and be aware, be open to them.
You mentioned a song, and I'm, I'm speaking now to my uh, my producer, Albert. Do you remember, Albert? I'm not sure who – I can't remember who the guest was, but we had someone on the program, and he was talking about his, his brother who passed away. Oh. And his brother uh, um, loved Lawrence Welk. Oh. And now – and he said to me, try to think the last time you heard Lawrence Welk played on the radio. And I could mm. honestly say, I've never heard Lawrence Welk played on the radio. Yeah, it's I on TV. So. He was the TV guy, you know, a yeah, one, yeah, a two, yeah. a three. Yeah. And he said uh, uh, a, a few weeks after his father passed and he was thinking about his brother and thinking, I wish I could have a sign. What do you think came on the radio? Lawrence Welk. Uh, Lawrence Welk. Isn't I mean, that cool? Yeah. 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 It's, you know, um, there there has been a uh, I'll, I'll tell you one thing that had happened with us. Uh, we were back in Florida, and our rental car, I just turned on the radio for the first time after about a week there, and there was Dad's song playing, and it was his song that had uh, been uh, part of his uh, presentation of his uh, at his uh, funeral. And it just blew us away because <laughs> it was a very appropriate song, and it just came on, you know, out mm-hmm. of nowhere. Uh, but it, it, they, you know, they, they reach out in so many ways. I, I mean, I've had coins. I've had things move. I've had uh, things put in my path. I've heard songs. I've smelt him. I've heard him. Uh, I've had significant visits from him while I'm sleeping. And I've actually shared a significant visit with my youngest son the same night with my dad. Can you share so that, that with us? That was pretty cool. While time remains, can you share that visit with us that you had with your son? Sure. Uh, you know, uh, we share back-to-back birthdays, and um, my dad came to me in my dream. He started out old, glided across, and became young again, and he typically uh, is, is in his late 30s or early 40s, just very healthy, robust, and uh, wished me a happy birthday. We chatted for a bit, and uh, the next day, I woke up my birthday boy, and he said, Mommy, he goes, Grandpa came to me last night. I'm like, what are you talking about? I hadn't heard that before. And he said, yeah, but he goes, he started out old, and he glided towards me. I'm like, holy cow. So I'm listening to this, and he's like, yeah, he goes, he was talking, he was trying to tell me, you know, don't give up and, uh, you know, stay with the dancing and things will be okay. And he said, but then he said, at the end, he said, oh, I've got to go wish your mom a happy birthday now. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, there's so many more things in the book. There's 37 chapters, so I've, I've shared some of the stories, but in, in the abridged version, for sure. But yeah, that just, uh, I mean, how can you explain that? You can't. There is no explanation. It was just Dad coming to visit us on our birthdays, and it was my night and his, my son's morning of, of our birthdays and, together. And six years later, the conversation, communication uh, continues. Yeah. And you, uh, now you're writing this, uh, the second book, and this, yeah. this, these are stories that are coming to you. How are these stories coming to you? Friends, neighbors, are you soliciting them online? You know what? I, in the back of my book, I ask people if they want to share uh, their stories with me just to fire me an email. I hear from friends of friends that know about my book. Uh, when people find out it's the type of book I'm reading, holy cow, they, they start telling me things. And I'm like, okay, I've got to record you. So yeah, Contact 2, T-O-O, uh, will be out uh, late spring of next year. And it's other people's stories, as well as a few of mine, of course, sprinkled in there as well, because this still continues. But I, uh, it is a series. And I want uh, people to, again, get some healing from other people's stories as well 
as let people tell their story. And uh, any, are you finding any sort of similarities between the stories you're hearing uh, from other people about their dearly departed and, and your experiences? Other, you know what? Uh, I, I, you would think maybe I'd have some similar stories, but I don't. It, some of them are, are just, it's, it's absolutely wild. Uh, and again, it's such a personal thing. People um, in, in their loved ones, you know, in their lives, uh, interacting on this earth, we all interact differently with, with our loved ones. So is it from the other side. Uh, I, I do see, um, you know, stuff with electricity, kind of there's some similarities in that. But, but the way, you know, their loved ones go about it is very different than the way my dad has gone about it. Uh, so, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know, I mean, I'm not finished the book yet, but I'm hoping that, uh, there will be something, uh, somewhat like mine, uh, some of mine anyways, but you know, who's to know, we'll, we'll see what, what happens, any who's f- going to come forward with their stories. Any stories of partial or full on apparitions? You know what? No. <laughs> see, I am... Uh, a bit of a scary cat. I don't watch horror movies or anything. And, and I, dad knows that. And I, I really think that if he did that, I would be pretty freaked out, to be honest with you. Um, so he kind of makes it easier on me. And so when I do get visits while I'm asleep, that is very, um, I'm, I'm very aware of what I'm saying to him. I remember my conversation as far as my side of it. Uh, he's always coming to me young, healthy. Uh, sometimes when he's visiting me, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. I haven't seen you for so long, you know, I'm, and you're not dead, yay, you know. And, and so we will start talking and catching up. But I, I, I've had other things happen where um, he, I, you know, I've, I've asked, for him to just kind of keep me comforted, you know, getting to a strange city, a strange hotel with my kids. My husband's on the other side of the world and asking dad, you know, can you just keep, keep me company tonight? And I'm not even finished what I'm saying. And he sh- turns on the bathroom light. And um, so those are things, you know, that I asked for that happened. But I really, I think, Richard, I, I don't know if I can handle him just appearing in front of me. I mean, but I don't know. Maybe I will be able to. Maybe that's coming up in a few months or next week or year. I don't know. All right. Well, hold on to your hat. Uh, Kimberly, a great pleasure, and thank you so much for spending some time with us. Enjoyed it thoroughly. KimberlyBouchard.com, and it's Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y, Bouchard, B-O-U-C-H-A-R-D, KimberlyBouchard.com, or just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on... Kimberly's name, and uh, that'll take you right to her website. Again, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Good night. All right. Back next week uh, with a brand new show. I, I mentioned earlier, of course, that we'll have uh, uh, Dr. Lana Marconi uh, talking about her new film, or The Resonance, about uh, UFOs, ETs, and much more. I mean, there's so much packed into this documentary. Uh, I can't wait to see it. I'll be presenting it uh, down at the U of T on November the 21st. And also next week, George Freund will drop by from Conspiracy Cafe to talk about skullduggery with our latest federal election. Wait till you hear this one. And uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley will drop by with another Paranormal News Roundup. Thank you, Albert. Thank you to Ian. In the meantime, 
don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.